0: Well, he's with us in the fire, with us with overflowing toilets, which is uh, what's going on today. You never know what you're going to be into, and uh, it helps to remember that it came to pass, right? This morning will be over, and that will be a memory that we'll laugh at, not right now, but at some point. But anyway, apologies for things that are outside our control. But uh, let's get our focus on who the Lord is, which we've done through worship and our gratitude directed toward the one who's been so good to us. And uh, we were, we're, are going to continue in the book of Acts, where we've been for uh, a while. Acts chapter number 10, beginning there in verse 24. And if you would uh, look together there with me in scripture and in the Bible, use your device, however you want to follow along, Acts chapter 10, beginning there with verse number 24, and the Bible says, in the following day, they entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends, and Peter was coming in, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself Am also a man, and as he talked with him, he went to, uh, went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, "You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I." came without objection as soon soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner. By the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed through all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of Jews and in Jerusalem whom they excuse me and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not all, not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Father, thank you again for your word. We pray that you'll help us as we listen, and help me as I uh, explain and proclaim truth. We pray for your spirit. God, just as you helped in those days, just as you affirmed, God, and as you worked among the people then. God, work among us, we pray. God, we need you so much. We know that there is nothing that we can do apart from you. And so we pray, God, for your strength. We pray for your forgiveness and cleansing. God, we pray to draw near to you, and we thank you for your promise that you'll draw near to us as we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. God, we love you, and yet, God, we realize that all of our adequacy is from you. All our strength, God, comes from your grace. And so we need you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture uh, that we read today is uh, dovetails really nicely into the conversation we were having in Sunday school uh, this morning as we've been going through Genesis. And one of the truths that we've seen in Genesis is uh, shown to us in uh, Acts chapter 17, it's repeated there, and we talked about this in our Sunday school lesson today, that the Bible says that God created all the nations of the earth essentially through uh, two people. He, From one man, it says he created all the nations, or some translations say from one blood. All the ethnicities, all the people that are in the world came from one set of human beings, one set of parents, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall And he determined their boundaries, the Bible says. And we think about our world in the first century world, and we know that bias is an unfortunate reality in our world. Prejudice is an unfortunate reality. Racism. You know, I was watching recently um, in Nashville, maybe you saw it in the news, that uh, neo Nazis are out in broad daylight walking. So we see anti Semitism still. problem in the first 21st century world that we live in you know we see racial hatred inexplicably still a problem among human beings and as we study the bible one of the things that we we come to understand is that re- racism and prejudice and those racial supremacy ideologies are contrary to sound biblical theology there's no way for anyone to rationalize or justify the kind of thinking that often is still a problem among human beings, not by the Bible. There's no way to be a biblical Christian and hold on to those kinds of ideologies and those racist impulses that often will happen. And yet in the Bible, we also see that Peter himself struggled with them. The Bible explains why No one has the right to look down on another person on the basis of their skin color or the basis of where they came from or to compare ourselves in any way with the idea that we're superior to someone else this way. It says, uh, for what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it came from you? The Bible says it's, it's, it makes no sense whatsoever for us to look at another person with comparison and to say, I'm better than you. Anything that we have. I think about that with professional athletes sometimes. That here are these guys are with this unbelievable talent. Where did it come from? Where did it, Where did the ability to be seven feet tall come from? You know? And it makes no sense not to be humble because if we understand life properly, we know that whatever we have, whether it's talent or ability or what we don't have, that every single person is created by God and we relate to one another with that kind of humility when we understand who God is and who we are in relationship with him. And this passage, I think when you boil it down and come to what's at the heart of it, it is, is really talking about the idea that we're created in the image of God. And I want to think about what that means for a little while. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Because that gets at the root of this. For Peter, he's struggling to come to this understanding of, okay, it's okay for the gospel to go to Cornelius, a Gentile. It's okay that the gospel is intended for everybody and not just for the Jewish nation. It's a struggle for him, and it repeats, it recurs in the Bible. But fundamentally, the issue is that every person is made in God's image, and God intended to secure salvation for everyone. So when we think about, I was thinking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, one thing you can see is that it's talking about a moral moral and not a material likeness. When we think about what it means to be made in God's image, it's moral, not material. In other words, it has nothing to do with appearance. It has to do with substantially what it means to be, what it means to be uh, created, what it means to have meaning assigned to us. It's moral. We are moral beings. And we we're going to work that out in our, in our lives, but part of what it means, means to be made in God's image is that you're a moral being. You have the capacity to choose right and wrong. You have the capacity to understand right, right or wrong. You and I do. But the scripture shows, too, in thinking about what God what it means to be made in His image is that our significance is derived divinely. I've been reading, rereading parts of a book. My intention is to read the whole thing again. Called "The Search for Significance" by Robert S. McGee. And he talks about the idea that sometimes when we think about our significance, he says that a lot of times people think our significance is our, our performance and, and what other people think of us equals significance. What I do and what other people think about me is where my significance comes from. But the truth in the scripture is that your significance actually is that God assigns it to you. God says you have value because you're made in his image and God uh, uh, comes after us. And he pursues us and he gave his son for us and he loves you and that's your significance. and That's my significance. My significance is not my performance. My significance is God's love for me that he proved in Jesus. And a lot of us struggle with that all the time, this idea that where where does my significance come from? If I don't do good enough, does God still love me? Well, God loved us before we did anything good. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so, significance. When we think about what it means to be a human. Then it, it comes from this idea that we're created in God's image. Our uh, sense of worth and dignity. The Bible teaches that every person is worthy of dignity and respect. Every person. You know, and this it doesn't all only apply along. Racial lines or ethnic lines, it uh, applies along the categories, other categories that we create in a a social construct, a society, where we think this person has less value than that person. The Bible says, no, everybody is worthy of dignity and respect. The people that are rude to us, worthy of dignity and respect. The people that we consider less than us, worthy of dignity and respect. Everybody that we encounter, the Bible says, because they're created in the image of God, they're worthy of dignity and respect. We have a worth itness. I just made that word up, worth itness. Redeemable, that's what it means. The idea that God says, Why why did Jesus come? Why does it matter that Jesus came and was sacrificed on a cross in our place? Why does it matter? Because you, even though we think, well, I'm not worthy, and, and we really aren't, but we're worth it, that's what God said. He said, you're worth it. That's what, I sent my son here because you're worth it. You're redeemable. There's something in you that because I created it, it's worth redeeming. It's worth saving. It's worth coming after. To be made in God's image. We're a high order of being the psalm writer he says it this way, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would consider him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels is the way it puts it in the Bible. And I think when he's reflecting on it, what he's, really, he's really reflecting on the idea that man is a high, a high order of being, even though the way that he says it downplays what, what is a man? What is a human that you're mindful of? And, but, but at the same time, he's saying um, a human is an incredible being, a person. So there's, when we think about what does it mean to be made in the image of God, he's, we're a high order of being. We're intelligent and moral by nature. We can choose and exercise our will in a limited way. It's not unlimited. You know what it's limited by? Mortality. When your mortal life runs out, so does your free will. Then it's all God. But now we've got the opportunity to exercise our will in relationship to God. But that's what it means to be made in his image. We're capable, answerable, accountable. The Bible says as it is uh, pointed to man, wants to die and after this judgment. Moral. Answerable, accountable. We're accountable to God because he created us. We came from God. We're going back to God. We reflect God even though that uh, image was marred by the fall. Still within people, there is the capability of goodness. And it is inherent from our creator. Marred, disfigured, and yet still present with us. This was interesting to me when I thought about what it means to be created in God's image. We're endowed with immortality from conception. Have you ever thought about that? You are immortal from conception. You're not eternal, but you are immortal. We're immortal. God created us with immortality. You will live forever and ever. You're a soul, a being who goes on. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God. At least these are some of the ideas that we can see about what it means. (coughs) God does not exclude anyone from the possibility of receiving Christ. That's when we think about this passage. Everyone is equally worth Christ's sacrifice, and we are equally in need of it. Everybody is equally worth the sacrifice of Christ. Everyone is equally in need of it. His sacrifice and so we see in Peter his relationship to Cornelius and the first century world and how he's trying to understand this that when he comes to understand this correctly that important commitments will follow and that's what we just kind of want to pull up out of this passage to consider together is though what are those commitments well the first one is that we see we see it in Cornelius, this commitment of concern for family and friends. Now, I don't know about you, but to me it feels like the very hardest people in the world to uh, connect with and inter- interact with about faith can be the people that we love the most, our fr- family and our friends, to get beyond the... Uh, way that we feel about talking with them. Uh, one thing I notice about Cornelius is that he considered an, an uh, evangelism an invitation and not an intrusion. When Peter gets there, it's his house is full of people. He knows that Peter is coming to talk to him about clarifying this God idea. Who is God? What does he want? If if alms are not enough, he's sh- he's giving alms. He's A person of prayer. He's a person who reverences God. But God is showing him, listen, that's good. It's not enough. And he wants to know, okay, if it's not enough just to be a moral person, a good person, to give alms, to be a person of prayer, what do I need? That's Peter's mission. Peter is coming to tell him that. He gathers everybody he can think of into his living room. And he he says, we're going to hear this good news together. He looks at it as an invitation, not an intrusion. I'm just going to be honest. Sharing my faith with my family sometimes feels scary and risky. That's how it feels to me. I don't know how it feels to you. But it feels scary to me and it feels risky to me. But I know that God's intent is for me to use my influence to try and help people that I care about realize the most important reality in life. Some of the time it's that they already know because I've already told them. I've already told them. I've already talked to family members, especially those really close to me. The rest of the time, really what I'm trying to do is bear witness to Christ and how I am with them. They know the gospel idea. I've shared it before. I've said Jesus is righteousness. If Jesus is the whole hub of all of this. And bearing witness then the rest of the time looks like loving them and trying to be available and not writing anybody off. But it's also about sharing the truth about who Jesus is, the gospel. I'm not the gospel. Jesus, and all he did is the good news. In this story, Cornelius is a pre-Christian. That's how I describe him. He's not a Christian yet, but he has Christian impulses. His, the Christian impulse that he has is, you know what, I'm going to try to help other people understand this important truth I know is on its way when Peter gets here. He understood that there's something in people that God made, God created. that's uniquely and inherently important. And he, he tries to flesh that out in the people around him, and I think that's God's intent for you and me too. And I, I was thinking about w- uh, ways we relate to culture. A friend of mine wrote this a, a while back, and I it, I remembered. I've shared it here once before. A guy named Tom Kreitz that I uh, used to work with in ministry long ago. He says, there are four ways to think about the lost world or to relate to it. We can separate from culture. And there's a sense where we should be separate in some sense, but not completely. He says we can fight against culture. That's the, the, the culture warrior idea, you know. It's like everything's a battle line. Everything is adversarial. And I don't think it's a healthy way to think we're going to view everybody in the world, world through an adversarial lens. If they don't agree with our Christian position, we're going to view them as adversarial. No, what we should think is God wants to win them as friends. God wants them to come to him. He says we can imitate culture, wrong, bad idea. But then he says, finally, the, we think about the world around, around us. We should want to reach culture. We should want to connect with people. We should want them to know the same good news that's become the transforming part of our own experience in knowing Jesus. So that's the first idea in the passage that we see when we think about how these folks are, you know, what their commitment means. They have a concern for family and friends. And, of co- course, I think that's where God wants us to be. Secondly, this has stuck out to me so much in this passage. There, there is a commitment to a readiness to worship. We look at what Cornelius does, it's, and it's wrong, of course, but here, the thing I admired with Cornelius is this dude is ready to worship. He worships Peter, the first person he sees. And, of course, Peter pulls him up and says, no, I'm a man just like you are. But isn't it admirable in this guy that his he wants to worship? He's ready to worship. His readiness to worship is something that we should imitate and admire. His posture is humble, right? It's wrong, it's wrong-headed, but his posture is humble. And what does the Bible say about humility? God does what? He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he gives grace to this man. Humility is evident in his heart. His posture, he's ready to bend his knee. He's ready to acknowledge God and and be a worshiper. And he sees that worship is indispensable to life. And by the way, worship is indispensable to life. It is. We were made to worship. Your life would not be right if you don't worship. He sees that life is, this worship in life is what he was created for. He doesn't know how to do it yet. Peter's on his way there to teach him how. But think of what God could do with the whole group of people who had this kind of readiness to worship, who looked at life and said, this is what life means. Life means worship. That's this man's heart. Readiness to worship occurs at the end of self-reliance. It, it comes from a realistic understanding of our limits. I don't know how other people view... I read this quote this past week when I was researching just the idea of, like, worship, and Charles Bukowski was a poet. He said, uh, Love need not be a command or faith or dictum. I am my own God, he said. I am my own God, he said. Delusional, I say. Worship follows as a realistic response to the infinite world around us. When we look at the world, this is what the, we'll see what the psalm writer said in a minute. But earth and sea and sky and space, how do I look at all that beauty and think it terminates with me, like this guy? I am God, he says. This is what the psalm writer says. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. And it goes on and describes creation. But basically, it's saying every day, God rolls out a testimony to himself in the created world around us. And gives testimony to himself day after day after day. And the the, the right way for us to respond is, as Cornelius is with a readiness to worship. And then we think, what are the commitments that are called forth for us out of the truth that we see here is that we commit again that Jesus is the focal point. Peter often has the opportunity to behave heroically. Uh, He goes and he heals someone, a person that had been paralyzed for eight years, we saw recently in a passage. He heals that person, and what did he say? You remember? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, heals you. That's what he said. Not Peter. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, heals you is what he said. Here, when Cornelius kneels to worship, Peter doesn't behave heroically. Of course he doesn't. He directs praise to Jesus. He doesn't make the story about himself. When we read the Bible, what we encounter in it is a lot of people just like us. Human beings who are flawed and who need to be forgiven and who need salvation. All of the people except for Jesus in the story that we see in the Bible are not the focus, they are ways that God is telling the story to us, but in all of them, we see their own need for forgiveness and salvation. I think about the patriarchs. You could make a really edgy Netflix series about the patriarchs alone in the Bible. When you read about their... The way that they were. I mean, they're, they're, the stories would make you blush when you read the patriarchs and you see the, some of the situations relationally that they're in and the moral uh, decisions that they make. And all it does is show us these people are not the heroes. God is the hero. He is the Savior. They are the recipients and then the ones who need The same thing that we need because human beings are the same throughout time and history. Wherever you go in the world, our story is always exactly the same. And in Scripture, we see these human stories that remind us about the gap that exists between holy God and sinful man. And they reveal to us our need for redemption. I heard Michael Card, I recorded this on a cassette tape long, long ago. That He, uh, he said, he, there, he's, there he is, suspended between heaven and earth, between man and God, the focal point of history. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the focal point of history. He, he came to us to re- redeem and to rescue and also in this story, when we think about the commitments that they have, that that once they understand this truth that we are created by God for God in his image, that they there was this commitment to prayer as the catalyst. It should not be overlooked that everything in the narrative that we've read the last two weeks begin with, with two people on their knees, right? Peter on his knees, he, he goes up on the rooftop at noon to pray. Cornelius on his knees who goes uh, and prays it uh, and both of these people God speaks to them in prayer. But it's easy to minimize and forget that. That God has ordained prayer as a means of his work in the world. A part of following him is working prayer into the rhythms of our lives. If we are going to really realize what it means to be worshiping people and people. It means that there is working into your life this rhythm of prayer, figuring it out. Praying without ceasing is the way the Bible puts it. Learning that it's an expression of our creation and uh, following after Jesus is learning how to be people who pray to him, who seek his will, who understand that we can't live without being a praying people. Jesus, the only perfect person, was often alone in prayer. Isn't that interesting when you read the Bible? That the only perfect person, when you read the Gospels, it says he went to desolate places to pray. That Jesus sought time alone from others for prayer. If the only perfect person needed prayer, we certainly need prayer, right? Right? He shows us, he models that for us. And I, I like this scripture in Luke 18.1. It says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. That pe- it says in other translations, men ought always to pray and never to quit. That prayer belongs to the life of a follower of Christ. Oswald Chambers says, prayer does not equip us for some greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the, uh, a catalyst. And then the uh, way that we respond to understanding what this story is intended, this passage is showing us is about the being made in the image of God and the barriers. Of course, it gets down to this, is that rem- we are committed to rem- removing walls of separation. It's how we live. We're committed to removing walls of separation. That's how they lived, it's how we live. It's what it means to be made in God's image. Is to understand that God created humanity. And I, Howard Marshall, a commentator, um, says that Peter's Jewish scruples were countermanded by God. His Where does his impulse come from? Where does the idea in Peter come from that I shouldn't go in a, gent- a Gentile's house? Interesting to think about. Another writer described the thought expressed in the passages that we've read as that, that Peter's affected, he calls it ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, which is right. It is exactly what he's affected by, but the question is where did it come from? How could Peter not see the value in non-Jewish people that he saw everywhere in other people in the ancient world? Well, he just knew his history. The Israelites had been warned never to intermarry with pagans while the promised land was being settled. God had said, you do not intermarry with the pagan nations around you. That was what God had told them. This is an interesting part of uh, Leviticus. God says, you don't imitate those people. If so, you'll defile the land and you give it a reason, to vomit, a reason to vomit you out as it will vomit out the people who live there now. The impulse that Peter has is from this idea that uh, if we're not careful, we'll become idolaters. But as often is the case, it's an overcorrection. It's an overcorrection that came after the exile, after guess what had happened? They had been vomited out of the land. Just what God told them. If you imitate these people, if you take into yourself and your behavior their ways, he says, this land of promise that I gave to you, I will boot you out of it. And they were exiled into Assyrian captivity. And then into Babylonian captivity, so it's what we observe in the Bible. At the the same time, when we read the genealogy of Christ, you find the names of three Gentile women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Well, here's what people do. We overcorrect often. And that's what you find in the life of first century century Israel, overcorrection, out of balance the Bible says, here's what Jesus did when he came in the first century world. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So as usual with people, implementation is the challenging part, right? Implementation. That's discipleship. We know these ideas. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them. And so they are implementing the these realities that have been affected because when Jesus went on the cross, he said, I've destroyed this wall of separation. It's superseded. And Peter says in the passage, now I understand that God does not, play favorites god doesn't play favorites there is no impartiality in god there are no boundaries that can keep the good news out the good news can go into communist china or communist russia or communist cuba there are not walls or fences or boundaries that can be erected to keep the good news out and in fact guess where the gospel often is flourishing in the world in places that government ideology is designed to keep it out. But you can't keep the good news out. You can't keep it out of prison walls. This passage shows us that in the final parts of it, God is providing a clear understanding of the gospel. Peter unpacks the good news, the message of the good news, and he tells them specifically what it means and that they need to follow through obediently, and that may be what some of us need to do as well. Is to follow through obediently. It's clear enough God's value for people, the fact that he gave his son for every person. But at the last part of this passage, <clears throat> he encourages them to baptism, to, to take steps of obedience. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, and what we really see is, Uh, what someone calls a Gentile Pentecost. Why did they need a Gentile Pentecost? Because as we keep going, when we get to uh, Acts chapter 15, there is blowback from the Christian religious community. Blowback about the gospel going to the ethnos, to the nations to the non-Jewish world and they and they say wait a minute here my brothers that came from me with me from Joppa here's what they saw when they were in the home of Cornelius they saw these people have a pentecost experience they they saw them baptized in the holy spirit and speaking in tongues and and it was there was evidence and so that's why God gives this experience to those people so that they are able to follow through and the church is able to follow God into this new territory, new to them. It's hard for us to see how, at least it is for me to think, how, that anyone could come to the conclusion that God's love would only be available to someone who was born into the correct ethnic grouping. It's hard for me to think about that now in this 21st century world. At first, Peter felt to see the extent of the gospel. He didn't see that the gospel was intended for all the world. His scrupulous religious conscience was being reshaped here by the dawn of salvation in Jesus and God's mission for the world. He became willing, though we see, to forego religious tradition and find the courage to keep resisting peer pressure because he does have peer pressure. Um, among what, it, it when you study the Bible, they call them Judaizers. They go around and they say, "You, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the Mosaic law. That's not a gospel. The gospel says it's Jesus who paid it all. And it's not our morality and it's not our performance and it's not, it's not our goodness. It's only by grace and through faith that salvation occurs. And so they're correcting these ideas and they're taking away the those extra biblical ideas. Even though they seem to them biblical at the time, they are extra biblical. And Peter has to keep deciding to obey God courageously and he struggles in it at times as you and I will too. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And sometimes we'll be affected by the fear of people. If I do this, if I'm faithful to what I feel like God is showing me or what the Bible is showing me that God says I should do and be like, there's anxiety attached to that. What does the Bible say? Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man brings a snare, but if you trust in the Lord, the Bible says in Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, you are safe. And Peter is ultimately obedient. I came without objection as soon as I was sent for, he says. So what are the obstacles that keep us from being fully obedient to Christ? When we see people as they truly are, formed in the image of God, that changes everything. I love a song by a writer, a gospel performer named Robbie Say. Um And it says, go outside and praise the God who mapped the stars out in the sky. Gather round with those who love and sing, he is our king. And then he says, no one should be left out. No one should be left out. So our theology forms our anthropology. In other words, what we believe about God being made in the image of God shapes our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to be related to the people around us and all our variety. God made variety even among people who all came from two sets of parents In Christian understanding. Made variety. And our theology causes us to embrace each other in that variety if God doesn't show favoritism how could we God's criteria for salvation is based on need and not on nationality and everyone has the same need that's what we see in the Bible we are coming to a part of our worship that I always enjoy and I hope you do too it reminds us about the incredible sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And today, as we observe communion, we were reminded that Jesus Christ came here in the form of a human. And when he taught about communion, about the Lord's Supper, he said, This is my flesh that's been given for you, this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of your sins. And so in a few moments as we participate in this uh, observance, what we will do is be reminded again of the goodness of God, the love of God for people like us who often feel how deeply we don't deserve it or we don't think we do. But he says, you are worth it, and I came for you to redeem you and to give your life the, the meaning, to restore to you the meaning that I created in life to begin with, before sin entered in and fouled it all up. And so, as we partake, my encouragement to you is: if you are following Jesus, participate in this as another way that we worship. And in, in, in humility, the Bible certainly encourages us in First Corinthians chapter eleven to examine ourselves. The truth is, as we walk through this life we come short of the glory of god we sin we fail and it, it our our bent is toward god and his holiness the truth is we're still fallible and flawed and we fail and so let's take a few moments and reflect and pray and seek the lord and and then i'm going to we're going to st- uh, step forward here i'm going to ask alvin if you'll come and assist me and jonathan if you'll come as well and um, we're going to observe communion. And the way that we do it, um, most of you, I think, have been here before. If you haven't, then we encourage you to participate if you're comfortable in doing so. There are two ways. We've got the uh, um, sealed cup, which, you know, if you're concerned about communicating um, germs and stuff, definitely understand that, and we uh, respect that. So we've got a a way that you can do that uh, with the sealed cup. Uh, and also we do it by a manner called intinction, where you take the element, the bread, you dip it into the cup and you receive it that way. But I'm going to just, let's just sit in silence for a couple of moments. And then afterward, we're going to invite you to stand and, and come as we observe together to the Lord's table.